Record Collections and Recollections. Out of the Box, with Mia Hull on FBI Radio. Hey, you're listening to FBI Radio 94.5 DAB or streaming via the podcast or on the website. This is Out of the Box. It's the place where I, Mia Hull, sit down with one guest every week to look at their record collection and the stories from their life and how those things interact. We're recording from the FBI Radio studio in Redfern today, which means we're coming to you from unceded land belonging to the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I want to take this moment to pay my respects to Gadigal elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to any First Nations person listening right now. This always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Today my guest is Holly Hawkins. They're a game designer at Wargaming and also an industry expert speaking at Powerhouse Late Games tonight, which we'll talk about later in the show. But gaming is not something I know anything about, so I want to dive right in. Holly, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me, Mia. I want to stay right here in this moment because when I saw that you were a game designer, I think I first thought that that was a very visual kind of job, but it's not really like that at all, is it? No, it's a common misconception. I often get asked if I do the art for the games uh, because a lot of other design fields, it's very visual design. Whereas in game design, it's about designing the experience. So the overarching narrative, the different mechanics, what the gameplay experience is, that's really the purview of design. Walk me through the mechanics of that. Uh, When we're working on a game, we will play that every single day, first thing in the morning as a team. And we'll go over changes that were made the day before and whether they're stable, whether they're fun. Are you involved in turning the initial concept for a game into a game and can you walk me through the process of someone thinking of something and then it being something that other people can play? It depends on the scale of the product to be honest. I have worked in rapid prototyping a couple of times which is where someone often the creative director has already gone through a business investigation into the validity of the product and any gap in the market And then it's our role to, in a short period of time, so a couple of weeks, a couple of months, to build out the idea of a game. And when you're in that role, you're thinking about the target market and you're also thinking about the whole big picture game that you're aiming for and how best to represent that in a small scale. Because you're not going to have the time to fully develop all of these extensive systems. So a lot of the time it's an illusion of a final product. Do you mean by that how when you're playing the game kind of looks like the world is bigger than what it really is? Like you're only kind of limited to a couple of fields or a little town and you're led to believe that it's a whole world? Is that kind of what you're saying? Oh, yeah, absolutely. When I'm navigating the engine of a game, it often reminds me of pop-up books. Mm. You know, like all the, the pictures that fold out. And then when you look at it from the side, it's just a bunch of planes but from a particular angle, and that's the angle you're crafting, is you you know that the player's going to view something from that perspective and you're arranging the world to look good from that perspective. That's so interesting. So it sounds like you do get to, even though you're not designing the visuals of the game, be creative in some capacity. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And we use that term in the industry. We refer to designers and artists as creatives 
and we'll have a creative director who's in charge of art and design because often those are very strongly related and it's, well, to describe my relationship with artists is I will often give feeling motivators. I won't say this is what it has to look like and draw these comprehensive concept arts, uh, concept art. I'll say this is what the play is meant to feel. This is how the play is going to engage with this thing and then they'll make the visual aspects. Is that almost like uh, vibe driven then? It's like I, I want them in this part of the game to feel like it's a Sunday afternoon. Is that <laughs> It's incredibly vibe driven. That's the right word for it. Yeah, and it can get frustrating to engineers sometimes because they're so specific and mechanical and procedural and technical when you say things like, I want it to feel warm <laughs> and welcoming. You know, and but it is, it's a very feeling based role. And I think what you're trying to do is craft feelings. Mm. I guess for you then as a creative working in the field, what does your inflection look like in a game? How do we know when Holly Hawkins has played a role in bringing a game to life? Can you tell me about the things that you think are important or the things that you'd like to include? Yeah, well, oftentimes within the studio, people recognise it because I've made it too difficult. Because <laughs> uh, I personally am drawn to struggle experiences like Dark Souls and Elden Ring. And, you know, I'll be told to tone it down a bit <laughs> um, or overcomplicated and I'll have to pull it back a bit. But one of the things I'm really passionate about is accessibility. So when I work on a product, I'm focused on all the different barriers to entry to games and how you can consider them and design your objectives and your routes to be visible and accessible to colorblind players, to people with deafness or audio processing issues. That's my particular passion. And later in the show, I want to circle back to accessibility um, in games because I've heard you talk about it before and it's super, super interesting. You now work at Wargaming. How did you arrive in this role? Uh, in my second year of study, I applied for the internship there. They do two seasons of four-month paid internships per year. And I actually didn't get the first one I applied for. <laughs> they, they said, you came very close. Would you like to come in for mentorship? And so I did. And after a few months of mentorship and bringing in my uni work, I got the next season of internship. And that was very interesting because... I was thrown into a completely new way of working and a completely new engine. But at the end of it, I said, please, please, can I have a job? <laughs> please, can I stay? And yeah, they made me junior and now mid-level. Hell yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, I mean, I have so many more questions. I just don't know anything about this world. And all the way up until one o'clock today, we're going to explore it. But first, we're jumping into a song, Holly. What's the first one you'd like to play? This first song is very relevant to my life now. I'm on this unapologetic search for music that makes me happy, no matter what it is. So this is by Clowncore, which is a duo of incredibly technical musicians who make what I can only describe as clown music. Uh, and this is their song Toilet from the album Toilet, which they recorded in a portable toilet. Thank you. 
That was Toilet from the Record Toilet by Clowncore, and you heard it right here on FBI Radio 94.5. This show is out of the box. My name is Mia Hull, and I'm joined by game designer at Wargaming, Holly Hawkins, who chose that track. And just before we jumped into it, they were walking me through what it means to be a game designer, which I'm learning is a lot more involved than just the visuals. I want to kind of wind back to the very beginning, Holly, and look at all the moments in your life that have brought you to being a mid-level game designer at War Games. So can you recall maybe the first time you were actually interested in a game? Oh yeah, absolutely. It's a very poignant moment in my memory. We got a Windows 98 when I was seven and we didn't have a computer before that. No consoles, nothing. And I remember just playing a bunch of Minesweeper, pinball, making collages in paint until we found a copy of Age of Empires in a cereal packet and just played it to death. Did games used to be distributed in cereal packets a lot? Was that common? Yes. So in the late 90s, early 2000s, it wasn't uncommon for a game to put not the whole game, but a sizable demo of the game as a physical disc in a cereal packet. And when I rule the world, that's coming back big time. What kind of sucked you into Age of Empires, do you think? What parts of it really tickled you? I think it was just the opportunity to have a completely different experience. I was raised very rural, and it was just me and my brother making up games in the Hawkesbury. Oh, cool. So uh, west of here, about an hour and a half uh, in Currajong. And It's sort of you and your brother on a property wondering (laughs) what to do. And then Age of Empires gave you this opportunity to role play as these different civilizations and leaders, which was an empowerment that I hadn't experienced before. Mm. It was also just a really endearing design. It was just very impactful. I think to this day, RTS games are my favorite genre. And that's the ones where you're kind of viewing from above. Yeah, yeah. So some other games that I've really enjoyed, uh, Stronghold and uh, Battle for Middle Earth, they're all top down and you're just building your nation. Mm. And I got really attached to the individual units. I didn't like sending them into fruitless battles. So I got really involved in the strategy and how to preserve (laughs) my valued little tiny people. And I want to dig into that a little bit because you were talking about growing up in the Hawkesbury and making up games with your brother. And I feel like my brother and I, when we were little and like playing games, we would kind of make our own like challenges and missions and goals. Did you ever do that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Because it kind of sounds like you were really interested in like playing everything perfectly or like, you know, keeping your community happy. Exactly. And it, it goes back before we even had a computer. My brother and I were inventing games very dangerous games that my parents were right to stop, you know, like (laughs) jousting on retaining walls with brooms and shovels and things like that. Do you think that, yeah, having spent so much time outdoors, there was something that drew you into this, like, unattainability of, you know, the digital world? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I have never been pleased with how many mortal experiences are available to me in my position in life. (laughs) I want to do it all. But, you know, there's barriers like your location, your socioeconomic status, your gender, your age, a lot of these things, even reality itself. And games give you an opportunity to have experiences that otherwise you couldn't live 
And I think it's such an important way of expanding your mind, not just as an escapism to you know, run away from reality, but something that enhances your reality. Totally. And I want to circle back to where we were in your childhood and the games you were making as a little person. It seems like you were infusing some kind of creativity into all of those things. Were you a creative kid and how else did that take shape? Absolutely. I'm a born noisemaker. Don't stop making noises. I'm always whistling, humming, singing. I love music. And the other thing I'm really passionate about is art and painting. And I did start that as a kid and get really into it, but a lot of my own insecurities became a barrier very quickly. And so... I would never be able to finish something or continue something for fear of ruining it Mm. or it not being perfect. Perfectionism. That's like the definition. Exactly. Exactly. I'm a recovering perfectionist. So does that mean just allowing yourself to make mistakes more? Yeah. Not just mistakes, but allowing things to be finished. Mm. I had a whole bunch of paintings up until 2020, really, that were around for years and years and years, never finished. And some of them were actually not finished and I needed to do more. But some of them were finished concepts that I was unable to let go of. Mm. I was so adamant that I could improve them or fix them, make them better in some way. And it wasn't actually till a couple of weeks ago that I went round and signed a bunch of my paintings. And it was like a powerful seal, like it's done. I think it's such a relatable experience. I think there's such a pressure to have something finished and perfect Mm. and without flaw. And recently, my grandpa asked me to paint a backdrop for his play, a four metre by three metre. It's the biggest thing I've ever painted, but it was so awesome to get it done. But I didn't get it done. Mm. I never finished it. I was painting all nighters up until the last moment. And where there was supposed to be a horse-drawn cart in the background, I just got a green rectangle in. (laughs) But he went ahead with the play and they hoisted it up and no one stood around saying, what's that green rectangle doing? (laughs) (laughs) Holly, you've chosen a song by Lorne and Delore. Why'd you pick this one? I picked this one because it was very important to when I first got the job in the beginning of 2020 and I was working from home and listening to a lot of electronic music just to focus and to get into the flow of work. And Lorne is one of my favourite artists and Lorne and Delore did an album together, which this is from. And this track, even though it's electronic and very produced, it reminds me of things growing. When I listen to it and close my eyes, I picture time lapses of plants wriggling up. You're listening to FBI Radio 94.5. You can picture plants wriggling up to this song. It's called The Garden by Lorne and Delore. And you're hearing it on Out of the Box with me, Mia Hull and Holly Hawkins.
You're listening to FBI Radio 94.5 DAB, or if you're streaming via the podcast or on the website, fbiradio.com. That song was called The Garden. It was by Lorne and Delore, and it was chosen by my guest on Out of the Box today, Holly Hawkins, who is a game designer at Wargaming, and we just ran through your early life, Holly, and the things that made you love gaming. Between then and where you are now, there's quite a big gap, which is what we're going to explore right now. Fresh out of school, where did you go to study? I went to JMC in Surrey Hills and got a Diploma of Music, which I have yet to do anything with other than look at sometimes. Is it framed? (laughs) No. (laughs) What made you want to get that diploma? I wanted to be the next Hans Zimmer. I wanted to compose film score, game score. I wanted to write music. And it was a bit disorienting for me to find out after I got into the course that it was more of a performance-based degree. And they were like, get in a band. I'm like, do you want a violin in your band? (laughs) And it really crushed that desire and that drive. And it was nearly impossible to find any sort of job in music that I thought would get me to where I wanted to go. Mm. I mean, you, you studied that diploma in your very early 20s. What happens next? Oh, 18, 19 I would have been when I finished that. And I was then just completely terrified of going for my dreams. That seemed like such a mistake, an expensive mistake Mm -hmm. as well. So my early 20s was just existing, really. It was a whole slew of different service level jobs and just earning enough to pay rent and buy games and have fun in my free time. Are you happy that that's the way that you spent your 20s? If you could do them again, would you do it the same way? It's difficult because there's big areas in my life that I look back on and have regrets, mainly for not chasing happiness or believing in myself. But because I was that kind of person, because I had those deep-seated insecurities, I am grateful for the time that I spent in my early 20s trying all these different jobs Mm -hmm. because it pushed me to be more confident and to seize what I want. And straight out of school, early 20s, I was always trying to be what I thought the other people in the room wanted me to be. Mm. And going back to school at 27, I was much more confident in who I was and not trying to be something mutable, but just trying to be myself. And I think if I had tried to go for games when I was 18, 19, I wouldn't have had the determination or the strength to do it. You know, there's moments in my early 20s, especially, that I look back on and flinch at (laughs) the memory. But I think it was important for me to notice those parts of myself that led to those situations and cut them off and grow something else in its stead. That's beautiful, Holly. Thank you. (laughs) And so you said that you started studying again when you were 27. Yeah. Why did you make that choice at 27? I just had this really terrible retail job, telecommunications retail. It's a debilitating job Mm. where you're supposed to upsell everything. And when it comes to telecommunications, there's so many people who don't need the $100 plans or the $200 things. And when a little old lady comes in, I want to sell her the $22 plan. Mm. 
Mm. That, you know, because all her friends call on landline and she doesn't use the internet. But my boss wanted me to sell her an iPhone. Yeah. And it was such a conflict of interest because in my heart I wanted people to be happy and have fun. Mm. But in my role I was supposed to trick people and take their money. Mm. And I just ended up doing this meditation and asking myself, this isn't what we want to do. Mm. we're very clear about that. This is not what we want to do. You're going to spend so much of your life working. What could you do that you could go to almost every day for a long time in your life and be happy with your life? And I thought games. So when you come to that decision, where do you go next? I Googled video game school. (laughs) Like, is there a video game school? And there was. <laughs> there was. And so I just signed up for it. And it was a bit of an impulse decision because I didn't have a lot of money. And it was a course that needed you to pay out of pocket for a lot of things. And during the course itself was a really difficult time. Like multiple jobs and late nights and lots of emotions. But it's probably the best impulse decision I've ever made. Yeah, well, I mean, look at you now. (laughs) You're talking at Powerhouse late tonight. Yes, I am. And let's go to you as also a mature age student. What was that like? What's What's the average age demographic of people who were studying alongside you? Most of them were 19, straight out of high school. And it was very strange because it was nearly a decade between us. Mm. And high school has changed since I was at high school. A lot of these students had the privilege of programming as a high school subject and had so much exposure to these concepts that I really had to seek out on my own because it wasn't something that was available in any sort of school at the time. Mm. And a lot of them could rattle off all of these different games, news and studio happenings behind the scene and I just felt completely out of touch. Mm. In a few minutes time I want to talk about accessibility in gaming and gender in gaming but first you've chosen a track by Tropical F Storm which you discovered via FBI Holly. Tell me about that. I did. When I was studying for the games degree I was driving to this horrible IT job at horrible hours of the morning like for over an hour the drive was and it was a 98 Corolla so I couldn't plug a phone into anything and that's when I was stuck listening to FBI oh well I wouldn't say that (laughs) I was certainly stuck listening to radio and after pressing the scan button a hundred times 94.5 was my favorite (laughs) and so I just left it on that and I first heard Tropical F-Storm, their song, You Let My Tires Down, and I thought, oh, this is delicious. (laughs) And so I looked up the album, and the song Chameleon Paint really spoke to me because it's like the people who are shaming you for being who you are or trying to pull you up on just being a person, they're obviously wrong. They're obviously not opinions that you should internalize. But as he says, why do I feel like dying? It still hurts and it still Mm. lingers and you still have to deal with them no matter how much you consciously separate yourself from the relevance of that. And so it was a really cathartic song 
And now that I'm much more confident in my identity, it's still, it doesn't have quite the catharsis to it, but it still is a banger. <laughs> we'll jump into that song right now on FBI Radio 94.5. This is Tropical F Storm, chosen by Holly Hawkins, who now gets to be in the studio curating for other people tuning into 94.5. I love a full circle moment. Character growth. Um, <laughs> it's character growth. And this song is called Chameleon Paint. Million Paint. It was Tropical F Storm on Out of the Box. You are listening to FBI Radio 94.5. My name's Mia, and today I'm sitting down with Holly Hawkins, who is a game designer at War Games. And since 12 o'clock today, we've been talking about game design and gaming in general, and a couple of times we've touched on the relationship between the industry and gender and accessibility. So I want to explore that a little bit now. First, I want to talk about that kind of discovery that happened in your 20s. You now identify as non-binary. Was that journey part of your 20s as well? It was part of my late 20s. I didn't actually come out as non-binary until I'd started at Wargaming. And it was an interesting time because I think it was because of the lockdown and spending so much time inside by myself, it sort of forces you to be introspective Mm. and to think about yourself. And I was going to work and getting really cranky at people for misgendering people and, you know, we need to do stuff and do things better. And then someone asked me, you know, what, what would you prefer to be called? And I just sort of blue screened made dial-up sounds. Oh, oh, no one's ever asked me that before. Mm. Well, what do I want to be called? I'll have to think about it. <laughs> and I did, and like, yeah, they, them, please. Yeah, and how do you feel about that now, and were you supported when you made that choice at Wargaming? I was definitely supported. The games industry, even though it's a male-dominated industry, it's a very progressive tech field, so... There's a lot of diversity initiatives and they're more than skin deep in a lot of ways. Like you have communities that are dedicated to addressing these issues because it is so historic in the games industry and you're encouraged to put your pronouns in Slack and you're encouraged to participate in the diversity initiatives. And I have a really good team lead and anytime anyone misgendered me after I came out, he would very politely correct them. Mm. It wasn't like you're now in trouble, but it was persistent and he still is persistent to this day. So overwhelmingly supported, I think. Holly, last year you worked as an organiser of International Women's Game Jam. Can you first tell me what a game jam actually is? A game jam is an event where people form small teams And over a short period of time, normally a couple of days, we'll make a game from scratch to fit the theme of the event. And they happen in all sorts of scales. And International Women's Game Jam was an event that started overseas 
and had over 30 countries participating. And 2021 was the first year it happened in Australia and I helped out with that. So what does it mean to help out with that then? Are you kind of just organising different game designers from around the country to come together? Not really, because it's open to the public Mm. and all different skill levels are welcome. It was more hosting the event. Unfortunately, it happened during the second lockdown. Mm. And we were supposed to have a Sydney site and a Melbourne site, but both of those were shut down, unfortunately. But the WA site, which was headed by Caitlin Lomax, that went ahead at Interstudio, which was really awesome. Tell me about the importance of having a women's game jam. Why does that matter? It's so important because it is a male-dominated industry. From the IGEA 2020 to 2021 report on the Australian games industry, the gender demographic is 67% male, 23% female, 8% trans and 2% gender diverse. So it's not very equal. And it's an industry and a product that historically has always been male-dominated. And you don't notice what you don't know. So it's so important to have a diversity of perspectives when you're crafting something in order to make a product accessible to all sorts of people. I'm learning throughout this interview that game design means so much more than just the visuals. And I think when I think about that gender disparity in game design, I think about what it means to have a man design a woman's body and perhaps the way that men might put a female character in knee-high boots and give them big old boobies and a big old butt. (laughs) Absolutely. There's more to it than that, surely. There's more to it, absolutely. As you said, these characters that are created, they're created for a particular audience. A lot of the time when a game is trying to be more diverse and they say, well, we'll make half the characters women, it's done through a male gaze. Mm. So they're not designing female characters to be a power fantasy for female players. They're designing them to be a fantasy for male players, which, as you said, results in very sexy warriors. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I guess what I'm trying to get at is... You know, other than the visuals, what happens when a man designs a game? Well, the history of games happens because for most of the history of games, it's been entirely designed by men. And a lot of modern games, they don't educate basic information required to play a game because it's taken for granted as assumed knowledge. You know, like everyone who plays games knows that you use WASD to walk around and your mouse to look around. But that type of design, it's exclusionary to anyone who hasn't had the privilege of being included in the target market of games for its history. And the target market has historically been men? Men between the ages of 15 and 25. (laughs) And then... Therefore, sorry, I'm just trying to understand what you're saying. So do you mean, therefore, because like women haven't been the target market of games, they don't know how to play them? Yeah. And so a lot of very simple information as it's regarded by Mm. people who play games, you know, oh, we don't need to educate that because anyone who's been playing games for the last five years knows that. Yeah. They understand that, which makes these games almost impossible as a new first player Mm. experience. 
So accessibility to gaming then, I know when you talked about accessibility before, you kind of talked about the coloration of things for people who might be dealing with color blindness or, you know, other other parts like that, but it almost sounds like making a game accessible for women means making space for them to maybe not have that assumed knowledge. Absolutely. If you want women and girls to play your game, all of the information that you need to play the game and have fun needs to be educated within the game itself. If you're not educating these concepts and they need to look externally, that's another barrier. And it creates work for them. Exactly. And a lot of the time, if we try to engage with a product and we've exhausted all of the options to understand it from within it, we don't want to go that extra step of researching on our own how to play. Yeah, it's meant to be fun. Exactly. (laughs) So what does a game look like that you think does that well? And what are some of the kind of components that you think make it really accessible for women and girls? I think a game that does a really good job of it is Team Fortress 2. I did a research project on Team Fortress 2 last year because my manager actually gave me the stats of the gender demographic of US players in 2019, which was 49% female. So nearly 50-50, which is wild. What are the stats normally? Oh, mid-20s, early 20s normally. Really? Yeah, yeah. If you get all the players of a game and group them by gender, Mm. normally it's about 25% of players of a game are female. Around a quarter, less than a quarter. Yeah, particularly multiplayer games. You see a rise with games like Stardew Valley and things that are more comforting and welcoming. Mm. But with competitive multiplayer, it's often in the early 20s. That's so interesting, Holly. I'm Yeah, I'm just like wowed by this. <laughs> and I mean, other than accessibility with, you know, making space for someone to learn a game if they're perhaps playing it for the first time, what kind of changes do you think need to be made in the gaming world? There needs to be an understanding of the concepts that are taken for granted. There needs to be more research into the perceptions of games and game characters from people who don't play them. Oftentimes when we UX test, test the game, we particularly select a very male-dominated, gamer-dominated tester base. Mm. And that's not testing for accessibility at all. When you break down the Team Fortress 2 stats, of that 49% of total players that are female, 15% of the female players are over the age of 65. Really? Yep. Why? Is there a reason for that? I have a hypothesis, and I think... It's what we were talking about before, the fact that their tutorial captures everything Mm. down to WASD and use your mouse to look around, as well as per character tutorials. You know, this is your character, these are their abilities, and this is what you do as a part of a team. I think the most important part is the fact that the classes, which have distinct roles in a team and on a battlefield, they do a really good job of the silhouettes and the naming They imply their battlefield roles. They look like what they're supposed to do. Uh, I surveyed people who are not gamers and not men and showed them Team Fortress 2 characters and they were correctly assuming things like 
not just where they would be in relation to the team on the battlefield, but what they would be doing, how fast they would move, even aspects of their personality and how those characters would animate and talk. Holly, what's the next song you've chosen? The next song I've chosen was very relevant to my early 20s. It was sort of my gateway into psychedelic rock, which is one of my favourite genres of music. It also had a similar feeling of catharsis to Chameleon Paint, where it was, you know, like putting on another face to suit the person next to you. And, it, you know, now, same as Chameleon Paint, even though it doesn't have that catharsis, this is one of my favourite songs and has been for most of my life. It's Tame Impala's Alter Ego. Don't you know it doesn't have to be so hard Waiting for everyone outside To agree to Tame Impala and Alter Ego on Out of the Box on FBI Radio 94.5. It was chosen by my guest on the show today, Holly Hawkins, who is a game designer at War Games and a guest speaker tonight at Powerhouse Late Gaming. Holly, can you tell me about what we can expect from you this evening? Oh, it's the second Powerhouse Late Gaming that they've held. They're going to be turning the whole Powerhouse in Ultimo to this games hub. It's on tonight from five to nine, and it's completely free entry. There'll be a Games Plus developer showcase, a tabletop arena, untitled Goose Game multiplayer, a retro arcade, (laughs) and talks from key industry experts. Myself, one of them, I'll be on at six o'clock. I love the journey of that, Holly, how, you know, we've been talking about your early life in your 20s and how, you know, there was maybe this messiness that you weren't so stoked on at the time, but now you're talking at the powerhouse as a key industry expert in such a short amount of time. This is only something you started pursuing a few years ago, so it's so exciting to see. And, yeah, I know that we've been listening to Holly's voice for the past hour, but if you do want to see their face, that's where to do it. It's at the Powerhouse Museum in Ultimo from 5pm tonight. I'll put all the details to that one up in the programs page on fbiradio.com. Holly, what does the future hold for you? As I was saying before, I really want to deep dive into sound design and how that works in games. I also just want to get to senior game design, so... That involves a couple of years of getting really academic about my craft and Mm. working towards it. Eventually, I would like to start my own studio, be my own creative director. Um, Maybe even take Bethesda, you know, challenge Todd Howard to a a joust, take it from him by force. Mm. That reference is lost on me, but I'm sure that there are people listening who (laughs) (laughs) got that. And I'm trying to think of what your gaming studio would look like. It's accessible but it still has games that are really really hard (laughs) and games that are really beautifully designed in terms of sound and I'm so excited to see what the future holds for you Holly thank you for joining me thank you for having me you've been amazing whoa stop (laughs) (laughs) no (laughs) what song would you like to end on today I would like to end on this song by Peter Bibby who's an incredible artist from WA. My mate Tim showed me. He's 
a bit bogan, which I love because I'm a bit bogan. <laughs> and he has a lot of joyful songs, but I picked one of his more forlorn ones because it speaks to one day having money and dreaming of money and what you would get with that money. And it starts off really simple, like clothes without holes and food in the fridge and taking care of your friends and putting juice in their cup. Mm. But it gets to you know owning a cherry farm and property and going overseas and being crazy. And I'm at the point in my life now where I've got clothes without holes and I've got food in the fridge and I have my friends over and I treat them good. And <laughs> now I'm just looking forward to all the money I'll get. <laughs> Perfect. We'll jump into that one right now on Out of the Box on FBI Radio 94.5. The song is called Stinkin' Rich. It's by Peter Bibby. And it was chosen by game designer Holly Hawkins, my guest on the show today. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you did want to listen back to this episode, you can do that on the programs page on fbiradio.com. I'll also have a full list of the songs that Holly chose for the show and a bit of the stuff that we've spoken about, including details to their talk at Powerhouse Gaming tonight. You can also listen back via the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. I want to give a big shout out to Ella Stewart, who produced this episode. And it was actually Ella's first ever time as a producer on Out of the Box. So shout outs to Ella. Uh, and yeah, do stick around. Lunch is right around the corner. Thanks, FBI. I'll buy a whole farm. I'll pay my work as well. Just enough to keep them calm. But I'll probably get bored and get a cocaine habit. I'll go to Amsterdam and fuck prostitutes like a rabbit. And gamble in Las Vegas and lose all of my money. And end up in the street with nothing but a...